This is Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, where we talk to industrial and systems engineers about their work, ideas, and solutions. Hello, and welcome to Problem Solved. I'm Keith Albertson of IISE. In this episode, we'll talk to father and son industrial engineers from two generations on how the discipline has evolved over the years. Kevin McManus is a performance improvement coach and chief excellence officer for Great Systems, as well as an IISC fellow and monthly columnist for ISC Magazine. He's joined by his son, Christopher McManus, who is director of industrial engineering and continuous improvement at Hormel Foods. While discussing the various challenges and tasks they have faced, they also find some key common threads that remain true for ISEs over the years. In particular, the need to maintain effective communication and a human touch. All right, Kevin and Chris, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're looking forward to talking with you. Uh, just find out a little bit about both of you and, and what you do in your backgrounds. Uh, Kevin, we'll start with you. You've been in industrial engineering in a lot of different roles for, for many, many years. How did you get started in this field and how did that lead you to, to where you are today? Wow, that's a great question because it, it, it depends on where you hop into it. I went up to the University of Arkansas back in 1976 expecting to, and I'm not going to do the whole you know, 40 years up until now. But when I went to the U of A, I, I had no idea what type of engineer I was going to be. And I just happened to come across Dr. Imhoff sitting in an office. And back then, Dr. Imhoff, I mean, he was well thought of at the university, but he did not have near the notoriety he has today uh, within the industrial engineering uh, field. And we just started chatting and he just had a way about him. And he was, was very fatherly like, and he's the guy that put me on that path. And the interesting thing is, is as Chris is, will talk about with himself, I started in very traditional industrial engineering roles, learning very traditional industrial engineering. That became my foundation and it's still in my life today. So uh, even now when I do virtual work, I'm living IE every single day, and I'm amazed by industrial and systems engineers that aren't. It, it, it puzzles me, but it's the lens I view life through, whether that's good or not. Chris, how about you? Now, you um, saw your dad's career path as you were growing up as an industrial engineer. What were your impressions of what industrial engineering was at a young age, and how did that inspire you to eventually uh, decide to, to follow in his footsteps? Yeah, like so many kids, I don't think I paid as much attention to what my parents did as in hindsight, I wish I would have. Uh, I knew that my dad solved problems. I knew that he was analytical. Uh, when I was ages about nine to 11, I was very keenly aware that he worked at a candy factory. So that was a pretty cool thing for a, for a kid that age. Uh, but to be honest with you, as a kid, it wasn't something that I gave a lot of thought to as far as industrial engineering specifically. I knew that, again, I wanted to do something analytical. I, I liked math. I liked numbers. I love statistics. You know, I was the kid who, uh, when he was watching the, the football games on Sunday, was tracking all the stats and coming up with his own fantasy football with my teams playing against myself before I even really knew what fantasy football was. Uh, and so definitely into the analytical side, but I went to Purdue University, uh, proud Boilermaker. But as a freshman, I fully intended to be an aeronautical astronautical engineer. 
when I toured Purdue, you, you see the astronauts, you know, Neil Armstrong, Gus Grissom, all those, those heroes from that part of the world. And, you know, you can't help but be uh, drawn to that. And I thought that was a pretty cool thing. Now, fortunately, the Purdue engineering curriculum does not require you to pick a discipline until your second year of, of school. And so they also give you exposure to kind of a survey class where you get some folks from all the different engineering disciplines and they come in and, and give you some additional insight as to what that major might look like and even some thoughts and perspectives on what a career could be in the future. And I also had some friends, one good friend of mine who, who still is an aeronautical engineer to this day. And, and as I learn more about it, it's like, gosh, I don't know if I can picture myself behind a computer spending eight months designing, you know, one small bolt on an airplane. That, that, that's just not me. Uh, and so I heard about industrial engineering from some of the other folks that came in and spoke about it. And then that prompted me to give it some more thought and say, man, this really does seem to be in my wheelhouse. It's, it's people focused, which I enjoy. It's big picture. And, and I just love the fact that even though I'm not in, in the plant anymore, uh, for the first 14 years of my career, I was, and, and I just really love the thought of getting to go to work every day and see the fruits of that labor and, and get to work on making that better every day. And so that's what really drew me to industrial engineering. Once I understood more about what it was all about. And Kevin, how did you encourage you when you saw that he was interested in, in kind of following this path? Did you encourage him and give him some advice on, on what to expect as he uh, moved forward in his education? Well, Chris interned with me for two different summers, once as an industrial engineer, and then the second summer, he had other activities going on as well. And so he actually worked production, which I thought was a good thing uh, to learn that side of it. I know I always learned a lot when I would get out, get out there. But in terms of his choice at school, that was all his choice. And I applaud him for making the choice that he did. I would have been happy with whatever route he went. But it's interesting to see how our paths have gone very similar directions, even though there has not been a whole lot of explicit dialogue about what direction the paths should go. It's uh, I think we both look forward to where industrial and systems and engineering is going uh, relative to uh, Internet of Things and cognitive uh, processing and how we can be more effective from a human factors perspective, the whole operations research side, what we can actually do with data and data analytics. We're both very much into that. And that wasn't by plan. And I think a lot of it is just almost osmosis. You know, we saw each other doing things and we kind of picked it up. I don't know if you can tell it or not, Keith, but are, we also sound a bit alike, but <laughs> there are some similarities here. <laughs> He looks like his mom for sure, but unfortunately, <laughs> he's got a little bit of me inside of him. We'll see if too much of that Arkansas comes out. That's when you know I'm really sounding like you because I'm up here in Minnesota. But if I'm talking to him too long, maybe occasionally a little bit of that pops out too. <laughs> that will happen. Well, I've had the chance to see the whole field evolve. That's one of the coolest things because when I started school, I didn't even use personal computer until my third year of employment. And now I've seen it progress to where it's at now. And then that's where I count on Chris to let me know what are, you know, what are the big companies doing, you know, from a data analysis perspective and where are they able to get into the fancy stuff like Tableau and all the fancy stuff Tableau does versus what are we still just trying to really do with Excel, but using the full power of Excel versus the small amount that we used it way back when. So 
know, he helps me see some of those things. And I stu- I try to study this stuff every day to stay sharp with it. But it's just interesting to see what our field has shifted into. And I like it even more now with what it shifted into versus where it, I didn't even know what human factors was at university. Now it's one of my biggest things in life. So it's, it's interesting to see how that evolves. Well, you've seen so many changes over the years and, and, and Chris is living those out now. I mean, what, what are some of the major things? Is it technology driving just a lot of the changes in industrial engineering from what you've seen? Uh, are a lot of the basics still there, but the technology has sort of changed the way they're applied? I guess I'll take that. And I'll, I will say that I think at Hormel Foods, we are probably about as traditional of an industrial engineering company as you'll find. And I say that in the most positive way possible, because I honestly do believe that it's a point of difference for us. We still do elemental time study to build labor standards. And I think there are companies out there that might say, oh, that's crazy. Why are you spending your time still doing that? But honestly, there's so much value in it because if I don't have accurate labor standards, how am I accurately measuring the efficiency of my line? How am I accurately setting goals for what my output should be? Do I know that my labor cost is accurate? Do I know that my capacity file is accurate? So I am timing future capital investments properly. And so as as far as somebody talking to somebody who's going to give you the most cutting edge perspective on industrial engineering, I don't know that I'm necessarily the right guy, but but I honestly got a champion for those traditional industrial and systems engineering techniques and skills, because I do truly believe that no matter what marketplace, no matter what industry you're in, there's a place for those, for that accurate work measurement as a foundational principle for building all these other great things on top of. And see, and I don't, I don't prompt him to say that, but that's how I see it. 100%. I mean, I had MTM training, you know, micro motion time methodology, Uh, from Maynard back in 83 to 85. And I still think of that stuff every single day. You know, when I go to make a reach and I have to rotate my hand, you know, X number of degrees, I mean, that stuff's still burning in my head and I'm not, you know, obsessive about it or anything like that. But I think it's like you say, it helps you get the most value out of time. And time is the only resource that we all have the exact same amount of. And, and it is, it's capped. And so we're going to get the most out of it one way or the other. And, with IE, the cool thing is we have to do that from a mechanical perspective while also engaging the person and bringing the person into the story. And that's the other side, you know, Chris mentioned when he saw the industrial engineering field, that's one reason he went into it. I think that's our largest challenge now uh, is finding a way to re-engage this whole new workforce that we have that, I mean, I'd be interesting to, you know, Chris gets to see a lot of different plants and I would say they've flipped over half of them probably pretty significantly in terms of workforce makeup just in the last two or three years by the nature of things that go on. And so I I really think industrial engineering, the, the traditional stuff is almost mandatory now because that gives you the framework, the infrastructure and the standardization to help guide the new folks so that they can be successful in their jobs. Uh, that's just how I see it. And it's not a control thing. It's a help people out thing. Yeah, exactly right. And and I think that the diversity in our workforce is absolutely one of the big changes that has taken place. And even in my career, I've seen it. You know, I, I've been with Hormel Foods for my entire post-college uh, graduate graduate career, so 16 years now. And yeah, it, it's changed a ton. Multiple, many multiple languages spoken in most of our facilities. And so you've got to think about 
how can we engage those folks? What visual tools can we use to put in place from a training standpoint, from a mistake proofing point of view? Um, but I will say, you know, I want to reference back because, you know, this talk about diversity of the workplace brings back to mind for me, you know, dad mentioned earlier, the internship experience that I had for him with him, uh, coffee syrup manufacturer, uh, outstanding, outstanding team there. I, I don't know, dad, how many different countries were represented on that production line yet? Got any idea off the top of your head? It was between 10 and 12, depending on where the temp group was coming from that week. Yeah. And you're right. It's outstanding. Yeah. And and so that was really formative for me because it was inspiring to see such a diverse group of people come together and really take ownership of not just the work that they did, but of the entire process and of improving the entire process. And so getting to work alongside those folks and see, you know, really some best practices and work in place of engaging the entire team has been something that I've taken forward with me. Now, when you take it from a single production line in one facility, you know, to a huge production plant with dozens of different lines, multiple shifts, you know, scaling that becomes very, very difficult or, but seeing that has been big for me as something that I can refer back to and kind of uh, use as a, again, point of inspiration for what the ideal can look like. Yeah. So you, you just prompted a thought in my mind. And part of one thing I like chatting with you about is the fact you've got what 63, I think, industrial engineers across 40 something facilities. And just that N is, is really cool to play around with. But I, I would think that the tendency is for your eyes to want to do that type of thing, right? They don't want the office job, the desk job, the more sit there at the computer thing. Isn't it fair to say the, the new folks you're bringing in and even the folks that have been there five years or so, that's the kind of work they want? You see a spectrum most definitely. Okay. And I'll tell you without doubt, especially now in my current role, I do a lot of interviewing do a lot of the the selection for our, our incoming industrial engineers. And even more than technical analytical skills, it is those analytical people skills that, that I look for. And you really try to feel out as you're talking to this person during an interview, is this somebody that is looking for a behind the desk study numbers job all the time? Or is this someone who's ready to go down to the floor, engage with the team, engage with the production supervisor, probably work through some, some challenges there because those aren't always easy conversations. You know, anytime you're changing somebody's world, you're changing their workplace, you're shaking up their snow globe, that, that creates some friction sometimes that can be difficult. And so, yeah, without a doubt, we select for those things and we really target folks that yeah want to have those conversations and really see our role as as not just coming up with the best solution on paper or on a screen, but taking that best solution and working with the proper folks and the proper stakeholders to put it into action. And, and see, now I think what you just said is the hardest thing about, at least for me, was the hardest thing about being an industrial engineer or learning to be one is, but I think it's good practice. It's going out there and challenging people because I, I grew up in very traditional places where my first boss's boss hid behind a pole with a piece of per hour watch. And he would time the ladies packing the teacups in the tea sets with the pieces per hour watch. He'd look at it, no allowances, come up to the office and tell my boss, you need to send that new guy out there to give us a new rate. Those people aren't working hard enough. 
And as soon as they we show up with the clipboard, I mean, I, you've been with Hormel long enough. You can probably remember at least a department or two that maybe was that way, way back when. Oh, absolutely. The industrial engineer, you know, had that image. And absolutely. That's a tough thing to change, but I think you're changing it, right? We are. You really have to help people understand the why, because the reason we're doing time study, the reason we're measuring the work is not to crack the whip on anybody or to want them to work faster or work harder. Yes. The foundation is we all want the company to be profitable, but even more close to home than that is I truly believe everybody comes to work every day, wanting to do a good job, you know, and there are many good ways to do something, but there's one best way to do it. And that's what we're trying to, to find with each production operation that we're digging into. And then once we've dug into that, we want to show everybody what that best way is so that when we do come to our post every day, we can knock it out of the park and do exactly what we're, what we're trying to do. And a lot of times the conversation also comes into, you know, our plants are stretched right now, you know, and not to get into to too much pandemic related, but, you know, demand for so many consumer products is just very, very high right now, you know? And so our plants are stretched and sometimes helping the production team members see the, the what's in it for them. The why we're working on this continuous improvement is guys, we don't want you to be working every Saturday and Sunday. We want to get this, this product out in an efficient way so that we can get some of that work-life balance back that we're after too. And so I think if we can have those conversations, if we can get that point across, it really goes a long way. And you, to me, then you just brought up what I think is our, our most current, most pressing need within the profession. You had the luxury at DaVinci of working for a company that doubled its sales in three years. And we were growing double digits almost every year. And as a lot of folks say, you can do a lot with that. And you just use that as an example of, hey, this is why we want to work smarter because we don't because seriously, we would have been working just we were already doing 12 to 14s each day and it would have gotten into the weekends if we didn't put a lid on it. But it's the same thing now with a lot of companies. And I think a lot of people are throwing up their hands and not realizing this is the prime time to go in there and work with the team to optimize the waste out using that why that you just shared is that first of all, we're going to create a good foundation for what we're going to have going forward. But we want to get back with our families. You know, that overtime dollar isn't as compelling as it used to be, but I don't know how many other industrial engineering managers in your world and not, I don't mean in your company, but in your age group, see the, oh man, the problem opportunity we have right now. It's just so much easier to sell. Wouldn't you say? Well, there's two sides of that coin because the other thing that's happened just with all of the really challenging circumstances over the last couple of years is I think that a lot of our leaders and a lot of our operations folks are getting more and more stuck in what I like to call kind of the tyranny of the urgent where there's this fire, there's that fire. I'm trying to just keep the operation running. I'm trying, trying to deal with these new protocols that I need to deal with to properly keep people safe. And so sometimes the conversation is, okay, Mr. or Ms. Industrial Engineer, I don't have time for this conversation right now because I'm just trying to keep my plant running. And so some of where our sales job has to come in too, is really helping 
everyone on the team understand exactly what you just said. This is the prime time why we have to be putting the focus on these tools. This is why we have to be setting aside the time for continuous improvement because it's more critical than ever, even though we've got all these other circumstances and all these other challenges coming at us left and right. But to me, you know, and what comes to mind when you say that is our tendency to start accepting certain types of waste as being the process. And I think that's one of the hardest things to convince people of is, you know, you've had folks with seniority 10, 15, 20 years, and now you're saying the way they did a job for a certain number of years is wasteful, right? You know, it's, it's wasteful to do that, but it's the way we've always done it. How, what do you mean? How can it be wasteful? It's, it's an interesting word. And, and it's a very valuable word when you're explaining lean methodologies to people. And we've gained a lot of traction, I think, in recent years, focusing to a little bit more of a lean mindset. On the continuous improvement side, at times in Hormel's past, we've been very Six Sigma focused. Currently, we're shifting more towards some lean methodologies just because I do think they're quicker to act upon and they're more easily digestible. But yeah, that waste term can be very loaded. It can be very valuable in helping people understand the concept of lean. But yeah, you do have to be very careful when you're talking to somebody and pointing out that a certain part of their process is what it is. It's waste, but there's some tact that needs to come into play there as far as how, how you're having that conversation without a doubt. You just did someone without meaning to, but that's what prompted me. Yeah. You just told me I was wasteful, man. That wasn't very nice. But that's why the relationships are so important. Right. And, and that's one of the other things that I, that I really appreciate. You know, I, I mentioned while we were talking pre-show here, I went back and listened to the episode where dad, you were on with David before, and, and you talked about the importance of, of relationships within industrial engineering and how having that relational currency is the kind of the way that I like to think about it is really, really important because if you just go in no prior uh, interaction and expect somebody to go along with the improvements that you're suggesting, you're crazy because they, they don't have, you don't have that credibility. You don't have that trust in place. And so that's one of the things that I really emphasize with our young industrial engineers too, is you can't go in there guns blazing your second week with these great new improvements that you came up with. We've got to take the time to build those relationships. Everyone on the production floor, the production supervisor, everybody on the line, our operators, all those folks, because once those things are in place and we've got that trust and we've got those relationships, that's when we can really take off and see some of the results that we're after. Yep. And I do believe it's currency. You know, uh, I go by Covey's emotional bank account where we look at the deposits and the withdrawals in, in that regard. And uh, it's just such an important thing. And yes, if when you get caught up in the office, folks don't even know you. And so when you show up with the clipboard, what do they think? But that's where we've got to get to. I'm hoping that our younger folks are able to see that. I mean, are you seeing much of a generational difference? You've been, well, you've gone through half a generation now since you got out of school. Uh, are you seeing much difference in the IEs now from versus the IEs 10 years ago you were working with? You know, I think one thing that's interesting is you have to find that right balance between, you know, we're talking, you know, the warm and fuzzy of, of building the relationships, which is really important. But then you do reach the point where you've got to cash in some of that relational currency and actually push the envelope to get the improvement. And I would say that that's one thing that I feel like has gotten a little bit more challenging for some of our staff. Um, some of the folks 
coming through my generation perhaps had a little bit more of that fire or that interest in challenging the status quo. Whereas today it, it can be really challenging to get somebody over the hump to say, all right, you see where the opportunities to improve are. And yet here we are still kind of spinning our wheels because we haven't quite executed the changes that we need to execute. And so at some point that's going to require a tough conversation. And so I think generationally, and, and, and I always get hesitant talking generationally because you don't want to paint everybody with a broad brush. You're going to get exceptions all over the board. But if, if we're talking just, you know, general trends, I think that in, in the world today, we hide from those tough conversations sometimes a little bit. And I think that that's something that as industrial engineers, we have to make sure that we don't lose that fire that we always maintain, you know, treating everybody with the right dignity and respect, but that we also don't lose that edge to continue pushing the status quo. Because once we get complacent, that's when we really start to settle and, and where uh, we leave a lot of opportunities for improvement on, on the table. Yes. And I, I think the, you know, the other part that goes with that is, I don't know, it's, I'm almost wondering, is it more personality versus generation? I, I really, you know, social influence is the generational thing and then the personality thing. So I say, let's take procrastination. I don't think procrastination varies by generation necessarily. I think it's probably just a personality trait that folks pick up. Uh, procrastination is actually a fairly easy thing to beat if you use some fairly simple techniques, but most folks haven't been taught it. Uh, that's what I often saw with a lot of the supervisors is it was just that fear of change. You know, they and Because I, I went through it with PCs more than anything else, where I was trying to convince these people that are in their 40s or so that, hey, you need to learn to use personal computer, you need to learn to use Excel, you need to learn to use Word. And we've gone through that, but it wasn't that they weren't sharp. It wasn't that they weren't going to pick it up quickly. It was just that anxiety feeling. And I don't want to say IEs or counselors, but I'm really beginning to think that we need to just study human factors needs to be more than just a class. I think IEs need to know more and more about how people think and about how they think themselves. I, I don't know what you think about that, but it's almost the expansion of curriculum to get more into the cognitive side of things. Cause I wasn't taught it. I had to learn the hard way. I had to upset people, get chewed out and then go back and try again the right way. Yeah, correct. As you think about a traditional engineering curriculum now, granted, it has been a very long time since I've gone back and, and really studied what the curriculum looks like since I graduated in 2005, but hundred percent agree. If there are some more opportunities to get some of these soft skills in there and give students opportunities to think about those types of conversations and what does motivate folks on the production floor, how do the interests and the motives of operations different from the maintenance engineers you're going to talk to differ from the quality control folks you're going to talk to <laughs> differ, differ from your plant manager. <laughs> and that is one of the, the, the critical things, especially in a plant environment. Yeah. It, it's, it's just, you know, how do you balance all those relationships and, and really key in on what motivates those folks and help everybody come to the table and see that the continuous improvement and the efforts that we're striving to make are going to benefit everyone. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, you, 
that killed me. Oh, yeah, it's not, it's not a generational thing. It's not a person. I don't think you're just a quality person. <laughs> no, and I've been one. I've been a director of quality, so I can, I can say that kind of thing, but, but, but also the relationship building piece. I, that, I think that needs to be in there. I mean, I was lucky, you know, your, your grandfather back in 1991 introduced me to Dr. Covey. And it was during a Christmas when we were up there in Michigan visiting them. And he just, you know, they were, he was going through Covey training at his company and he just happened to pass the materials on. And, you know, that was kind of the blessing of that holiday. But uh, there's so much of that that I think would help uh, young people out because people may react in a certain way, but often they're pushing back for very different reasons than why, how they react. And I know it scared me to death. I don't know about you. We all know if we've ever talked about this, but I had some crusty old dudes that, I mean, I, I think they made me break down in tears a time or two when I was going out there trying to get them to change things out on the line. And I doubt you did that, but you might've felt a little misty. I think that can scare people off to where they don't even want to go on the floor because they're afraid of what they're going to pick up when they're out there. You probably, you have to have that a little bit in some of your plants. Oh, correct. Correct. And it's a continual evolution. You know, I will say that, yeah, we've been, we continue to make huge strides in that area, but it's always something that we can continue to work on getting better too. But it's life. And see, that's the thing, you know, I'd, I'd almost rather encounter it and deal with it at, at work where it's a relatively safe environment versus uh, later on. Let me ask you about something else, because one thing folks don't know about us is I think we both have some aspirations about where all this goes uh, big picture wise on down the road. Uh, I know you've heard me talk about the connection between work and community and family. I think you've got some some similar feelings. Uh, I honestly believe industrial engineering can help communities find ways to better engage families, just as industrial engineers helps leaders find ways to better engage work teams and organizations. I, I know you've said some things about this in the past. You want to, but we haven't really chatted about it. So you want to kind of clarify a little for me? Boy. Yeah. It's one of those things where I think our worldview and the way we think about life becomes so intrinsic that I believe that a lot of my thoughts on those, I don't even necessarily make the connection that it does have to do with industrial and systems engineering. But yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. You know, what it just comes down to is that there is an optimal way of doing things. And, and that's kind of what I was what I was thinking about when I listened to the previous episode. And again, I would encourage anybody that hasn't listened to that one, when you talk with David about the whole essentialism piece and applying the principles of industrial and systems engineering uh, to life is that you can kind of think of life as a, as a one big optimization exercise. And that's been one thing that's been really critical for me is, is not letting one of those variables squeeze out some of the others. And making sure that I maintain all of that balance. And so, you know, if I'm focusing too much on work, is that making things more difficult on the family side? Or if I'm neglecting to take care of myself physically, what impact does that have in, a, in other parts of my life? And so, you know, I'm not sure if this is where you were going. I think you were talking more about the community side of things, but I think of it just more if we help people understand in each of their personal lives, just to look at it from a, a lean perspective somewhat, you know, where is the waste? And then where are the opportunities that we're not maximizing to the full extent that we could? 
and achieving some of that extra balance. And so I, I think that that's a very interesting conversation and it could probably uh, lead to lead to some good places. Well, you're right. And I mean, in, in just in the simplest sense, you know, and I, you know, to I think works number three in your priority list behind faith and family. And that's one thing I'm so proud of about you. And I don't think you would be the industrial engineer you are if the priority was any different. So I think there's some important things uh, in there. But let me just give you an example. Organizations spend a lot of money trying to engage both external customers and external stakeholders. Now, we can call that sales and marketing if we want or sales and general admin if we want to go to cost centers. But there's a whole lot of money spent there. And yet, do we really engage our community stakeholders in a meaningful way? You know, I think you're seeing that now as you're trying to you know, strategically address the, the labor challenges you've got in, you know, in, in, in different plants. You know, certain communities are in a better position to help support the plant than other communities are, you know, and that wasn't necessarily something you were planning on when you put the plant there many years ago, but it's just that in some communities in the United States, we're starting to see community leaders get involved at looking at work at the community from a systemic perspective, systematic perspective, just like we look at work. And when I look at the last couple of years, I hate to say it, but I was blessed to work in manufacturing where I learned some good structured approaches for doing certain things. And I wish I could convey those more to other groups in the community, because if they could learn how to develop community leaders, like we learned how to develop our leaders in our plant, just think how much better the town could be. And then it feeds on itself as the relationships grow, because that's where your employees come from. Right. Yeah. So that, that that's the big picture look. And so there's the inside out. You know, how do you prioritize it yourself and how does that help make you effective as an IE? But then also, you know, as we start reaching out to folks, how do we find a way to help make community processes more effective, engage people more effectively in the community so that we all realize we're in this together and that, you know, sub optimization and silos and things like that just don't work because that's the concept we don't grasp yet. You know, sub optimization. We think that works. Oh, we'll just optimize each of the little parts and then we put them all together. It works. Right. There's no integration, man. <laughs> and that's the hard thing for folks to realize. So I, I never just I never really asked you to clarify. So uh, it could have come from either place and I would have been fine. I was just curious. Yeah. You know, and another one, and I'm not sure you know, how deep in the weeds you would want to get on this one too. But when you think about education, and I don't know if that's a, a place and I'm not talking uh, collegiate education, but, you know, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, it's never something that I've personally dabbled in, but it's just another example of. I think the opportunities are truly endless to where industrial and systems engineers could get involved and make a, a really huge impact. And, and I don't want to say anything, anything negative about the education that my kids are getting. You know, I, I think highly of, of our, of our public schools. I think that the educators that we have just work extremely hard and, and do heroic work, but there's always, there's always room for improvement. There's always room for optimization. And so that's just yet another potential avenue that I think is probably pretty untapped from the type of work that we do, where I think there would be extreme opportunities to look at those processes, to study, okay, where is the waste in this particular work stream? Where is the waste in this particular process? And how can we optimize and measure, you know, is the type of testing that we're doing leading to retention of the knowledge that we want these students to retain? I mean, there's a lot of different directions you could take that, but uh, 
yeah, certainly, certainly tons, tons of opportunities. Yeah. I mean, and I don't even know if you, you remember or not because you know, you're graduating high school, all this, you know, and I, we're moved, then we're moving out to Seattle, all that type of stuff. But I was really an advocate for tech prep back in the middle nineties, which is where we're trying to get that articulation between high school and, uh, you know, technical school so that we address this trade shortage that so many folks are going through now. But the other thing we did with tech prep is like you said, we went into the high schools or I went into the high schools and it was a uh, Salem high school in particular. That's the school that sponsored me and we taught them team skills. And so that's what, and so you have people that can, you know, there, there's other, there's ways that you can do that too. I mean, this isn't necessarily, you know, with me, I'm thinking five years out at the same time as I'm thinking six months out. And so when I say some of this stuff, I know it's not prudent right now because we've got a few other things to deal with, but then, you know, six months from now or a year from now, that's there, there's avenues. And I, my boss let me do that because he knew I would develop as an industrial engineering manager getting out into those roles and doing those types of things. And he, and he was completely right. So I was fortunate to have two or three really good bosses that pushed me and some others. I just learned bad habits to avoid from that's where those weeds start to come in. But does anything else come to mind, Chris, that you'd like to, I mean, cause we could get off on sports and industrial engineering for quite the long time, but I believe that's another podcast for another time. Yeah, I think yeah, so. We'll, we'll book that one for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Chris says uh, it's interesting because I've got a whole history with statistical process control going all the way back to where I thought I was being so, so cool, you know, teaching it to my team and then go to find out my team has some math and uh, uh, literacy issues that I probably needed to address first. But with Chris, Chris learned SBC and all of his stats stuff through sports. And so he still dabbles with it a bit, uh, you know, as, as a side hobby and he does okay. And he gives me someone that, in fact, I, I bug him sometimes in the morning asking him very strange questions <laughs> about sports data. But, hey, <laughs> I love this stuff. We can get lost talking about sports statistics and all of that. So, Well, how are your fantasy teams going this year? That, that certainly falls into uh, all of this, I imagine, right? Well, you see, well, Chris does well every year, and he knows he understands process refinement, so he never uses the same approach two years in a row, and he may even make modifications during the year. Well, in fact, he's had to make modifications this year, I'm sure, uh, with uh, the NFL season wrapping up. Yeah, I'm sure he's up near the top of his league. I haven't asked him, but he normally is. And now he's trying to decide who to play. <laughs> so, uh, so football, football is by far less preferable to me than baseball because football with the sample size being so much lower, so much more subjective to chance. And then of course the injuries come into play too. So yeah, no, sure. it has not been a successful uh, fantasy football season for me, but fantasy baseball, the keeper team still going strong, had another championship in that this year. And that, that that's really just because there's so much data and you got such a huge sample size, like I said, so that yeah. that's, that's my favorite as far as, uh, as far as fantasy sports go. I can agree with that. <laughs> but see, that's the parallel. A keeper league is the same as a plant or the same as a job site or the same as a hospital. You know, those are the folks that you want to keep. And so Chris has learned how to draft people before they become stars. And so in a sense, you're back to that hiring process. And how do you detect those skills and abilities that the person may just begin to be developing now that's going to make them a stellar IE in two to three years? I mean, there's so much commonality because we're working with people and processes. 
So that's that's definitely a whole nother podcast. I, I could see we could do a whole thing on fantasy sports and how to, all this applies because uh, well, we it's, it's Moneyball squared. So yeah. Well, and that's and that's what got it started. And then oh yes, we yeah. <laughs> We have fun with that one, but we can go just as nuts just talking about, you know, uh, capacity utilization and machine hours versus line hours versus people hours versus clock hours. I mean, even the traditional ice stuff's fun to talk about. So it, it, it's a nice spectrum of things. Yeah. It's nice to have someone that, uh, you know, I'm blessed to follow in a somewhat similar path without me having to encourage him uh openly encourage him. So I'm just so proud of what he's done. And I don't know, I can't say anything more than that. I get to live through him. It's, you know, so many parents, Oh, I want my son to be a sports star. I want my son to go and play in, you know, this league or that league. And I'm so much prouder of Chris doing what he's doing than if he'd been a star in any league, making millions of dollars, that's all irrelevant to me. This is a much larger success in my mind. Well, that's a, that's a proud dad speaking right there. Uh, and well, I don't get a whole lot of chances. So, <laughs> and I'm really, I know there's other, there's a lot of other industrial engineers that are similar in age to myself that also have kids and grandkids. You know, uh, I've got your grandkids that are going to, that I hope will become uh, industrial and systems engineers as time goes on. And I hope that folks hear this podcast because we're still fighting that image of what we truly are about. And if people know what this profession's about, that'd be crazy to go into any other with what's coming down the road in the next five to 10 years. Cause it's going to be so fun to be an industrial and systems engineer. We're yeah. going to get so many nice toys to play with and so much cool data to manage and analyze. It's going to be fun. Well, where do you see it all going? I mean, uh, we, we, the theme here has obviously been that the human factors are what carries over from generations, uh, you know, even as the technology changes and the way you gather data and analyze it is more, you know, technology based, obviously the human side is always going to be there. Where do you see both of you see this going in the future when the next generation comes along? Is it going to be more of the same and just different ways of applying a lot of the same things you've all learned? I don't really, I'm going to, I'll answer first. Then Chris can toss in his thoughts because he may see it a bit differently, but no one, there's one thing that, well, Peter Senge, who wrote the fifth discipline taught me it, but he learned it from Peter Drucker and Peter Drucker did extensive research into the history of management and discovered that every 200 years, fundamental change happens in the world. And then the industrial revolution is an example. And then we're going through a similar change right now. And when you emerge from it, you're in a totally different place than you were when you started into it. And most people don't comprehend what the internet of things is about. They don't comprehend what 5G, just that increased data transmission speed is going to do for us. And once we have that broadband infrastructure in place, which I hope with the president's infrastructure bill being approved, that that's going to help out the folks in the rural communities like us. It's going to give us the means to engage people and teach people and hear from people in ways that we've never had before. And from an optimization and that to me, that's the central word. Chris used waste when he was speaking with the OSU students a month or two ago, and he just he didn't mean what that waste is better than optimization. We have such a high percentage of work processes that yet to be optimized. 
there's so many people that have massive data sets and that create reports from those data sets, but they have not optimized their use of data. They haven't optimized their measures. They haven't optimized their reports. They haven't optimized how they use those reports to review feedback and drive further process improvement. Uh, it, there's, there's a gold mine out there in terms of waste reduction, in terms of errors we've accepted as normal. We're going to get to play with all that because it's, it's been, it's been invisible. You know, it's like your cognitive abilities were invisible 15 years ago. Now we can map you in ways we've never mapped you before. And now we can see what we couldn't see 15, 20 years ago. Well, we're going to be able to sense people's moods when they walk into the, the facility, you know, the people doing that little orca ring or whatever, they're just, that, that thing's getting better and better and better. And I remember going to a thing at Hormel 10 years ago where I was so impressed. I walked through this big, uh, you know, like metal detector thing. And it read my badge and said, hello, Kevin, up on the big screen, you know, and I thought that was so cool back then. That's just, you know, it's just passive RFID. And what we're going to be able to do with all of that, if we want to and can and optimize it, it's going to be so cool. And I just hope I'm alive long enough to see some voice, just what we're going to be able to do with voice. Uh, it's just there's going to be some cool stuff out there. And, and Chris can get into all the fancy technology side because his company works with the visioning systems and all the fancy PLC stuff and all that. But I'll let him uh, talk about his perspective of where he sees it all going in the next five or 10 years because he's the hands-on guy. I'm the guy that plays on the internet doing research two to four hours a day. Right. So automation, as he's alluding to, is one of the huge focus areas for our industrial engineering team. And I think that industrial engineers are very uniquely positioned to help execute automation solutions in so many environments, just because we have that sweet spot of enough technical expertise. We're probably ne never going to be the most technical person in the room on some of these project teams that we know enough to be dangerous, but it's having the process knowledge, which is so, so critical. And, and that's where our engineers really come into play with a lot of these is, okay, we can see what the potential vendors or the potential automation solutions might look like, but selecting between multiple good options to find the best one really takes an understanding of your work process to a very detailed level. And so I think that industrial engineers, as we continue to maintain our expertise on production processes, and then also, again, having these soft skills, because to be honest with you, I've worked on a number of automation projects. We've got a lot more in the pipeline. And one of the challenging things about executing automation is not even on the technical side, but it's getting the folks that interface with that automation up to speed and on board with why this makes their job better also. Because again, it's, it's like we've referenced before, it's upsetting the apple cart. It's very different for the folks that have to interact with these new technologies. And so, yeah, that's one thing that I definitely see the future of industrial engineering looking like is being adept at selecting optimal automation technologies, and then being a key leader in actually executing that in a variety of different work environments. Do you find that your engineers have enough engineering economics background to hop right in and do that? Or do you find yourself doing a lot of capital equipment justification, a refresher at the front end? Yeah. So at a company of our size, it's, it's pretty 
much a template. Okay. We've got a pretty well-defined uh, process for, you know, once we've identified the annual cash flows, we can pretty easily plug that in and, and understand what the NPV of that project looks like. And we've got some external folks, external to industrial engineering elsewhere in the organization that can help with that from a financial analysis point of view too. But yeah, that's not one of the areas that we have challenges getting people up to speed. Well, and the reason why I ask is, I mean, that's what I grew up on and I'm glad that I did, but the technology wasn't changing like it is now. And I can just see uh, projecting cash flows uh, to be a little bit different now than it used to be uh, in terms of actually identifying the true return that's going to come with a certain technology investment. Correct. And that's one of the things that we've been talking about a lot as an organization, in some cases in a labor constrained environment, is the ROI from the automation purely the labor cost that it offsets? Or are there some cases where there's incremental volume that can go out as a result of the automation. And this, it certainly depends on the situation as well. But yes, looking at all of those variables, you know, the real simple ones are, okay, I've got one person per shift that stacks boxes on a pallet. I'm going to put in a robotic palletizer and I can compare the straight labor cost of that person stacking boxes on a pallet to the robotic palletizer. That's a very simple one to, to analyze. But yeah, of course, when you're talking about a full line automation. You you may have difference differences in throughput. You may have incremental volume that can be delivered compared with the current capacity that the operation is able to put out. So yeah, th- those can certainly get a lot more challenging. But we've definitely have the right the right tools in place, and and our IEs are are well trained on performing that analysis. Well, Chris and Kevin, thanks so much. Go ahead, Kevin. I'm sorry. No, I mean, that's just another little fun thing about it. I don't, I'm not sure what folks get what Chris is talking about there, but that's where we're getting into the algorithms of things and looking at the multivariate analysis and that that's also fun stuff. So that's something we couldn't do 10, 15 years ago. We didn't have the horsepower, but now we do. So anyway, you can see, Keith, we can go on and on and on. And we will in the future. Yeah, we thank you so much. This has been fascinating just to see both the, the, the changes and the commonalities that have carried over over the years. And we thank you both so much for your time. And we want to urge everyone to continue to follow Kevin's column in ISC Magazine every month, which we are very happy to present. And we thank you both for being with us today. This has been great. And we look forward to, to having you on again sometime and see how things have gone in the future. So thanks so much. Thank you, Keith. Thank you very much, Keith. Been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Problem Solved, the IISC podcast, a production of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers in Metro Atlanta. This podcast is produced by David Brandt, Keith Albertson, and Michael Hughes, and edited by David Brandt. You can listen to all episodes of Problem Solved and learn about sponsorship opportunities by visiting our website, podcast.iise.org. You can also learn more about IISE at the Institute's website, www.iise.org. 